Hey everyone, uh, it's Nicholas Larmer here with Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree, and I'm of course joined by my esteemed co-host, Mr. Gabriel Plaza. Gabriel? How howdy, howdy, howdy. Oh man, it's a Sunday, that's for sure. So, getting yes. ready for a, for a big, bold week. People should know that uh, the last week, we actually did record an episode on Friday, so we're not technically late in a certain sense. Uh, yeah. But of course, uh, what's what's happened is that it was too hot to handle, and so maybe for our twentieth uh, anniversary edition, we'll release it as a part of part of a separate uh, pack, uh, pack of censored episodes. But for today, Dude, I'm afraid it, uh, it was flaming hot. I have too- seen, I've seen like uh, mol- cars that have been bombed by Molotov cocktails. Yeah, yeah. So super chill by comparison. Unfortunately, we're going to have to deprive the public of that one, but uh, we'll leave it we, up to we can imaginations. Give them, we, can, we can give them one taster, which is that we started the episode by sort of spinning a, a random word generator on the internet. And we said we'd just talk about whatever the first two words were. And I kid you not, they were looting and budget. So <laughs> if that isn't divine blessing upon our podcast, I don't know what is. It was just too much, man. It's too much for the internet. Um, so what we're going to talk about instead today is uh, two things. Uh, one of them is the smallest war by the biggest countries in the world. Uh, it's something we have spoken about, um, but it's developed and it's super hard to get a grip on. And we're going to try and either get a grip on it or sort of talk a little bit about why it's so what's going on in on the border of India and China is so uh, inscrutable. But before that, I want to talk about something that's very close to my heart. And that is that late last night, I got an email from President Christopher Eisgruber. I hope I'm saying that right. That's a $5 name right there. He is... He's he's the president of Princeton University, uh, where I did my undergraduate degree. And he emailed the Princeton community to say that Woodrow Wilson, uh, Woodrow Wilson's name is being removed from uh, the Woodrow Wilson School of International and Public Affairs and from the Wilson College of which my fiance Elena was uh, that that was her residence they're like six residences uh, or there were six in our time and that was one of them so i don't know if this has uh, crossed the pond if it's come across your desk at all um certainly it has uh, received universal coverage on america's mainstream platforms and uh, because, of course, he is a former president, Woodrow Wilson is. Uh, when was he president from? It was about, what, so, 19, 1912, 1914, somewhere around there? Yeah, I'm thinking sort of, yeah, 1910, 1914, something like that, through the teens, uh, and through World War One. He, he there we kind go, 1913 of, he, to 1921. There we go. He runs for re-election, I think. Well, he runs for election on the sort of promise not to get involved in the war. Then eventually he does uh, take America into the war uh, on the understanding that if he doesn't, um, Germany's kind of uh, spring offensive and uh, shock tactics uh, 
sort of uh well he didn't like the german empire um and there were there were various reasons i mean the germans had for example uh torpedoed an american uh passenger ship the lusitania a couple of years before um the americans got involved in the war and there was a general fear i think amongst americans that a sort of super powerful germany would cause nonsense and the final straw was ultimately the zimmer zimmer telegram uh, where the Germans said to Mexico, Mexico. Yeah. yeah, we'll give you some guns if you invade America, because tensions yeah. were very bad between America and Mexico at the time. And Mexico actually had a bigger army, interestingly. Um, now, the Mexicans weren't actually particularly interested in this because they knew that this was a completely false sense of uh, support they'd be getting from yeah, the Germans. They, they were playing the Germans. They were hoping for some biscuits uh, in exchange uh, for a promise and it, that would never be kept. Yeah. Um, and after that, the Americans and, and, and Wilson had a lot of grand ideas about international order. And he was very much a, a sort of big project type of guy. Yeah. So he kind of. Uh, uh, so, so, I mean, he's, he really does have a mixed record all the way. The, the point I was trying to make was that uh, the debate within America about whether or not to join the war also took a, a very different uh, view when American diplomats uh, came to the position that Germany could actually win this thing or Germany could hold out so substantially that it's going to sort of force a truce on favorable terms, nice. which is going to, which is going to shift the balance of forces in Europe to create the, the, the German superpower that you, that you rightly say the Americans were afraid of. And Wilson sort of, uh, doesn't, uh, get his way at the Treaty of Versailles. In fact, he doesn't even make it to the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and well, sort of, right? Because a lot of his ideas do get incorporated in the final version uh, far more than the British or the French would have liked. Right. But the French get their cri de coeur, which is that Germany takes full responsibility for starting the war. Although, so, uh, here, yeah, which, which is kind of... Look up. Look yeah. up what the French actually wanted to do to Germany. And they wanted to dismember it into a million pieces, basically. And oh, yeah. I think extend oh, yeah. French control up to the Rhine River, which, is, uh, which would yeah. have been quite different from how history turned out. Yeah. So <coughs> I think we have little Victor Davis Hansen crawling in here. Like the, the Treaty of Versailles, I think the thought that Nick and I kind of agree on about the Treaty of Versailles is, is that it's, it's sort of a mistake to think that it is too harsh. You should either think that it wasn't harsh enough, because if it had really uh, dismembered and disabled Germany, then the Nazis could never have risen to be the force that they were. Uh, On the other hand, it was too harsh in the sense that it sort of allowed Germany the sort of industrial base from which to regrow. Uh, But at the same time, it was too harsh in the sense that it attributed a force the Germans onto sign to saying that they took full responsibility. It hurt their honor without hurting their capacity to make war. Yeah, so so Davis Hansen's line is the last thing you want to do is have like small stick, big shout, right? You want to have big stick, small shout. So it is a small stick in the sense that Germany was left with the capacity to be strong, but a big shout in the sense that it's like ultimate disgrace to you, Kratz. And and I and I and I think the Americans were sort of unsatisfied by that, and I think Wilson hoped that the League of Nations would, uh, in part, be the kind of international body that would. Uh, check against exactly what happened and the League of Nations proved to be inept. So there's a problem with Woodrow Wilson's legacy. But, okay, let's just take it for granted that, that he did really good things. That's not the big one. <laughs> I know. Okay, so the the big problem with Woodrow Wilson's legacy is that he was a racist. 
right? And, and I not was just not just a racist for his time. He was he was quite a you know, he was quite a avant-garde on the cutting edge of racism for his time. He, for example, resegregated <laughs> the federal <laughs> the federal government. Dude, that is such a way of putting it. He was he was on the avant-garde of racism. He really was. And I can't it's like quite hard to explain how much this rocked me when I figured it out in my junior or sophomore or senior year, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, at Princeton. I was like, I was amazed. Because, you know, we had Wilson College, we had the Woodrow Wilson School of International Affairs, and I knew that the building was designed by the same guy who designed the Twin Towers, and, like, I'd been inside there and said and seen Bush administrators and hung out with uh, Obama administrators, and, like, you know, I felt like I really knew the ins and outs, and yet I didn't even know that this guy that so much stuff was named after was, like, literally discouraging black people from joining from getting a good education was resegregating the federal administration was the dude who brought in birth of a nation the movie that kind of made the ku klux klan hip yeah. into um, the white a house big, a big ku klux klan uh, fan and fan of the old south yeah and he said you know he said it's lightning in a bottle which is a great line but like you know so he's clearly super bright super super bright super capable super energetic but like yes he was racist he made lives people. He made he made America worse. Uh, in that regard, I mean, in my opinion, and I and we may disagree on this, but in my opinion, he's probably the worst American president possibly ever, at least in the twentieth century. Yeah, so I think we do disagree about that. But um, I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not in the mood for standing up with this guy right now. Um, in yeah. any regard, <laughs> not a fun all, girl to stand up. All I can say is that. I personally, when I figured this out, uh, said to one of my roommates, dude, we need to do something about this. We need to make a pitch. And we made like an informal pitch and and sent it off and it didn't go anywhere. But our idea was to like have a like have some kind of theatrical performance that would be followed up with a Q&A kind of session for all freshmen entering the university so that they would appreciate Woodrow Wilson's legacy. Now, the reason that we had this format in mind was that from sophomore year, um, uh, I performed in what we called sex on a Saturday night. And this is going to sound ridiculous. I kind of hope it sounds ridiculous because at one <laughs> level it is. Okay. But so when you get to Princeton, uh, there's a sort of orientation week, we would call it in South Africa. And uh, before classes start, when like freshmen have all kinds of things to do and you go to a big you go into like massive halls and it's it's so american like everyone's got t-shirts showing their affiliation their frat or their sorority and you can decide you want to rush frats or sororities and you go to their dorm rooms and there's like endless booze i ended up joining the oldest frat fraternity in history um uh kai-fi uh and I mean, there were good reasons for it, but I also one of them was that they had the coolest party. I like the fire and ice party. You had an, uh, an ice block, sort of like a meter and a half high, uh, down, which is sort of a luge is carved into it. So someone at the top pours like a heavy shot of vodka, like three shots of vodka, and you put your mouth at the bottom and it like slides over all of that ice and goes into your mouth and just it gives you immediate brain freeze. And uh, the fire is like a hard cocktail set on fire and you down them in. I don't know. I kind of thought that was. That's really Sounds not like why. Decadence I joined. At its finest. Yeah, it is decadent. 
but most of the most of the rushing is like for whether you want to join this theater club or this uh, sports team or this debating team or this political affiliation or this like community service organization and it's like america's way 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 more organized than any thing i've seen in south africa and princeton is obviously like the creme de la creme of this like american institutionalized format of socialization so that was interesting but the university itself does a couple of gigs and the opening gig you kind of hang out and um go to the the main chapel which is enormous and truly stunning and there's sort of whirly whirlies eight meters high being twirled around by dudes on stilts that are three meters high so it's like 10 meters high you see these like uh, beautiful colorful things flying around which seems maybe chinese maybe japanese maybe uh, indian maybe you know it's like it's actually original which is quite nice uh but just with hints of something else and the president said if her first words susie tillman were um before you leave remember why you came which i which i held on to i thought that was a good kind of opening thing and so you have the kind of bells and whistles and pomp and ceremony. And then uh, you have like uh, debates and you, you get introduced to the Socratic method and this is how we're going to do things. And then you get on the last night, uh, everyone has to go watch Sex on a Saturday Night. And it's a play about date rape. And the point is that you need to see the date rape kind of performed out to, to kind of you know, get that nauseating reaction of like, this is Yeah, revolting. to sort of understand the horror of it. Exactly. Uh, especially because there's all these other institutionalized things which might, it's hard, you never know, hey, when there are all these little clubs and societies, you never know where there's like some little esteem team being organized around kind of gross principles. So you, so you make sure that everyone gets that experience and then afterwards goes and has a couple of hours of discussion in small little groups in their residencies, uh, you know, small enough that everyone gets to turn, like quite a few turns to talk and to engage uh, civilly about about what's going on. And I was engaged in that conversation as a freshman, and so I, I, I applied to sort of perform as a sophomore, or well, I was asked to actually. Anyway, and then I performed as a sophomore, performed as a junior, performed as a senior. And so I thought this really works, and we should do the same thing for Woodrow Wilson. We should somehow like dramatically represent uh, his the the paradox of his character and of his legacy which is at once to have done more than anyone else to boost princeton's prestige to make it a great institution uh and on the other hand to be like a racist bad bad dude um and then to get everyone to talk about it like that seemed like a great idea anyway we didn't do it because we were lazy and useless and i was like uh yeah and we were rejected and whatever we thought of the idea and too, you were too busy drinking flaming cocktails <laughs> yeah, man, dude. And it's a, it's a weird thing about life. Hey, eh? you look back on it and you think like those moments where I could have made a difference, like, what is it that stopped me from doing it? And it's, yes, there's, there's, there's not a good answer here. Eh? Um, and it's a, uh, yeah, that's a shame. Um, anyway, so in 2014, no, 2015, um, South Africa, uh, does something that like really hits the world stage and it's, uh, uh Maxwell throws, uh, Jumamani Maxwelle throws poo and we, human poo and we, at a statue of Cecil John Rhodes. And this excites a debate about where the roads must fall, and it does. And later that year, um, uh, sort of at the start of the academic year in America, a bunch of Princeton students uh, go and occupy the President Eisengruber's Eisen office, 
and they say, you know, we don't, we're not leaving here until you agree to bring down Woodrow Wilson's name because it's a shame because he's a racist From and there's nothing yeah. going on to to explain that. So there's like a false veneration of a racist going on here. <sighs> okay, so far so good, right? Uh, we see we see the threat. I think uh, I don't think our South African listeners will need much reminding about ballism and what its and consequences. Its charming, charming uh, aspects. Yeah, yeah. But on the other side, we see the promise. Eh? The, the 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 it didn't start with poo being thrown at roads at a statue. You know, it started with like peaceful, nonviolent. Uh, attempt to engage in debate. So I, I was I was kind of very much in two minds about this, and I should explain again uh, what my beef with fallism is, and that originates from my experience briefly of going to UCT in 2008 before I went off to Princeton, and I joined the debating society and. Uh, Dudes were just, I was expecting people to engage in the battle of ideas, but instead they were engaging in raci racist insults against whites, coloreds, and Indians. And that sounds like South Africa's debating societies. Yeah, you know the type. And I, so, and so, like, but the thing is, it didn't put me off, hey? Eh? Uh, and partly that's because I grew up in Yeovil and sort of had become used to as a teenager walking around and hearing Mlungu Zongbulala, I'm going to kill you, white scum. And partly because I was like in a mostly black boarding house. And like I had this very like baked in experience of like, you know, if you just weather the storm for a while, uh, then and you kind of take it on your chin, like almost as if it's like a joshing attempt to see how fragile or sensitive you are, then you can break through and find a common humanity and have really interesting conversations and have really interesting debates and you can change each other's minds. I'd experienced that and I believed it and I loved it and I was very excited to do the same. So I kept going back and I was like eager little beaver um, and I kind of, look, I'm not going to go through all of the conversations I have. I'll just fast forward to to the end of it a couple of months later when uh when when i when i gave up and the conversation went like this i said oaks okay you say systemic racism is like means that you can hurl whatever abuse you want you can do whatever you want it's not racist because the system always advantages white people whatever the system is we we haven't managed to find a neat definition of what the system is it just sounds like the system is whatever justifies your behavior but let's put that to the side what can we do to make things better and then they gave a few sort of impossible answers. And I was like, no, what can we do? What can we practically do? And they said, well, the, what we can do is we can take down the statue of Cecil John Rose. And I thought, oh, this, this seems like a very reasonable – this is this seems like the perfect place to have a debate. It's uh, something actual. John, yeah, it's real. And you can see the problem, dude. Cecil John Rose was definitely a racist. He was definitely an imperialist. He definitely manifested sort of racial policies in uh, southern and northern Rhodesia. Uh, he definitely, I mean, I think, he, I think you can very easily make the case that he was a racist against Afrikaners too. Um, so he, was, he wasn't even like, you know, he was, <laughs> you know, uh, he, he was that kind of racist who, who's really figured out sort of my own race is the best. And like there's a hierarchy of other races and we've got problems with all of them. Uh, on the other hand, he basically founded UCT. He founded the Rhodes Scholarship. He, in the, you know, he wrote 
that the Rhodes Scholarship may not discriminate against people on the basis of race and religion. So that's interesting. Uh, uh, and people make the case that he sort of changed along the way. Terry Lakota, for example, has made that case to me personally. Uh, and that you should judge him by his, the standard of his times. And by the standard of his times, he was very progressive. Okay, so, okay, what do you do here? Well, I thought, I don't know, man. It was just so obvious to me at the time. Because in the, this is 2008. I matriculated in 2007. In 2005, the Mandela Rhodes Scholarship was established at UCT. Mandela voluntarily pinned his name to Rhodes's name to found the scholarship that was for students at UCT, I think doing honors programs and master's programs. I knew, I knew you couldn't get it for um, kind of basic undergrad because I was too poor to be able to afford a basic undergrad education at UCT. And so I had to apply to the only all-race scholarship that was available in the entire country, which is the Anglo-American scholarship. And I was very, very glad that I won that because otherwise it wasn't clear to me how I would be able to get a tertiary education. Anyway, so like I knew the Mandela Road Scholarship was on my mind. I knew it was on some of the debaters' minds because some of them were applying for it. Some of them were clearly doing debating because they wanted to win the Road Scholarship to go to Oxford. One of the, my fellow debaters there went to Oxford. Another one went to Oxford um, on the Road Scholarship. Uh, and uh, one of the dudes was actually on the Mandela Road Scholarship at the time at UCT. So I was like, look, if, 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 if Mandela could perform the following mental arithmetic – Rhodes has got a bad side to his legacy. He was a racist. He's got a good side to his legacy. He was pro-education. Being pro-education is like a fundamentally human thing. We can find common ground there. We can pin our name to the good side of Rhodes and know that in getting a good education, one of the things people are going to learn is that Rhodes was a racist and that that's terrible and that no one should be a racist. If Mandela could do that, why can't you? And why can't you do that in the very practical way of calling for a statue of Nelson Mandela to be erected next to the statue of Cecil John Rhodes? Yeah. And, show, and show don't a bit make of nuance, in other words. Don't make their status equal if you don't feel like it, and you probably shouldn't. Like, Rhodes is sitting there on his, you know, like, heavy uh, chair. Make Mandela stand. Make him stand tall. Like, if you want to, you can have his head, hand, patting Cecil John Rhodes's head. You know, I thought, go wild. And then later on, I thought you could get... Uh, uh, a sort of kente cloth woven out of um, metal chips uh, in the style of the, as, uh, the great Nigerian. As, as someone has pointed out, the kente cloth might not be the greatest thing because uh, it was used by a lot of slaving empires like the Ashanti. I I know, but but, but the reason I wanted to do this was because Akuya and Wizzle, uh was sort of running projects at the time. Uh, that that aren't really about kente cloth. It's about reinventing a kind of recycling. Okay, fair you know, enough. Literally taking garbage and making it into art. No, you don't have to do that. Just put the two statues. Whatever. Do something like but that. Just do something creative, basically. Add to the sum of light. Don't detract. Dude, and I've told you this before. Hey, so you know what I'm going to say next. But the response that I got was just breathtaking. One dude wheeled around, dropped his eyes, looked at me. <gasps> with uh, with an expression I'll never forget and said, yes, that is a genius idea. Put a statue of Judas up next to the statue of the devil and we'll burn them both together. Ah. And that, Size. yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, perhaps you were further apart from them in your uh, prior, in, in your sort of starting position than, than you at first thought 
Yeah. So this is nothing like what I experienced at boarding school. And uh, it was just, dude, it just cut me so deep. It felt so, oh, man. Anyway, I turned around. I walked away. I was godsmacked. Like, I couldn't, like, you know that feeling of, like, you, like it felt like someone had punched me in the chest. I just didn't know. I was, I was, I was, uh, I was speechless, if you can believe it. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I walked away and I thought, you know, the more I think about it, the less surprising this is. You know, I've heard these oaks refer, they use Mandela's name as a cuss term. If they say, ah, you're just being a Mandela, they mean you're just, you're a rat or a sellout or a snitch or, a, or some kind of ingratiating goody two shoes, uh, or some kind of coconut. Um, I'd heard, them explained to me that Mandela was a sellout, that the problem was he'd gone for the white man's law instead of uh, sort of uh, spilling the blood on the streets without which we'll never have peace or justice in this country. I had heard all of these things and I kind of, I just hadn't, did it hadn't sunk in and then it sunk in. And my response was to say, okay, thank God I'm going to Princeton and here's my game plan. I, as a white man, I'm never going to be able to make any kind of contribution in the public square in South Africa. Uh, no one is ever going to take me seriously. Um, the only options that I have are either to capitulate before this kind of stuff, renounce Mandela, renounce the principles of non-racialism upon which this country Join the mob. Join the mob. Uh, say, oh, whiteness is terrible. I'm so sinful, you know, and then like make money like Mark Liffman. Or, and uh, and those... Who are those rugby chaps who worked in Bosnia? Uh, anyway, uh, Gavin Watson or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So either either be a Watson or a Liftman, or you know what you got to do as a white person? You've just got to admit that like this is the price of freedom. Shut up, uh, go into business, make lots of money, and and by the way, shut up. Uh, so that's that's what I committed myself to do. I was like, I'm going to try and do do what I can to be an investment banker, make money for ten years, and then see if I can find a way to like have a business that sort of is more to my liking. And then I went to Princeton University, and it changed my mind. It really did. It kind of it did this thing to me in small and big ways of making me, dude. It made me feel like such a coward. It made me feel like such a pathetic coward that I had given up so easily on, on my right and my responsibility as a citizen to speak truth to power, to use reason over force, to hold accountable those who would use force over reason, and to be mindful of, of basic human dignity. Like I was just, I was, I was, I was, I, I, I felt ashamed of myself by by pretty soon into my Princeton career, and and the reason was that one of the reasons was that there were these sort of lively discussions about all kinds of uh, political questions and philosophical questions, and it was so respectful. And the issues, I mean, people were, you know, it's not like there wasn't a huge diversity of views, and some of those views, you know, sort of did amount to a kind of Hobbesian might is right. Uh, uh, realpolitik um, uh, frame of reference, but there was a respectfulness and there was uh, a, a serious curiosity 
and and more than anything the, the whole university was sort of run by an institution that that seemed so brave and so resistant to whatever forces in the outside world were trying to blow it one way or another that i thought you know if it can work here and it worked at my high school uh when i was there uh you know like how how cowardly to 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 give up on thinking we can make it work in south africa more broadly Anyway, so this is this is my frame of reference when I see that Princeton is pulling down, that Princeton is having a debate about Woodrow Wilson's name. I think you know, the the, well, the way it that sounds like the debate's been more settled than uh, you suggest. Okay, so okay, so so we're going to fast forward through history, but uh, but uh, but there's one last crucial bit, which is that Ice Gruber has like long and hearty discussions with these students, and it's very very interesting stuff. And there's like letters that start getting published in the in the in the Princeton Alumni Weekly, in the Princeton Daily News. Some people are writing in sort of broader platforms because they're super erudite, so they know how to like write for the New York Times and all of that. And I was I was like, okay, this is this is so different to uh, how the UC thing started, and it's so different to how it continued because it's remaining peaceful. It's remaining kind of, you know, there's no, there's no, the, the threat of violence thing is 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 quickly taken from like maybe in the fringes to nowhere at all. And then the university demarcates, I, I can't remember how much money, like I want to say like $13 million, but I think that's an underestimate uh, to pay for faculty, external experts and uh, and so on to facilitate debates across the university, across like every sphere all kinds of workers, all kinds of staff, all kinds of students to get as many viewpoints across, to get as much debate going, to figure out what we should do about Woodrow Wilson's name. And so it's a hugely expensive, hugely arduous process. And by the end, and by 2016, uh, August, the the review committee that has been established and has conducted these hearings and had these deliberations comes to its resolution. And its resolution is uh, that more work needs to be done to create like to do exactly what I wanted to do. So Wilson College had a brand new dining hall and they like commissioned a beautiful mural like in a very eclectic Cosmo style to be to adorn a massive section of the wall like millions and millions of dollars to like to do what the statues do, right? To imbue the space with a sense of our values and good values, right? So you go into Wilson Hall and you can't help but notice this beautiful artwork showing a very diverse like college brochure type thing, but it's even better than I'm making it sound. Okay, I'm making it sound kind of nasty, but it's great. And the other thing that they call for is education. Like all Princeton students have got to know Woodrow Wilson's legacy, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the other thing that they say is you've got to keep the name because he did really good stuff. And by keeping the name and educating people, you're going to get the best chance of like bringing out both sides of his character. And it just seemed like the Mandela Road solution. And that seemed great. And uh, that's what it was. And then I started worrying about it on Tuesday when President Ice Gruber sent out the first email uh, since George Floyd's killing uh, to the Princeton community about George Floyd's killing. And I was like, this is firstly weird because it's like a month after the fact. Secondly, weird because like like as I did on CGT in Africa, on Daily Friend podcasts, in my written work, like right after the George Floyd's killings, knock yourself out, condemn that. It, it, the evidence, I think, clearly shows that justice was not served. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I fully support anyone who calls for and especially called for 
them the 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 officers relevant officers to be charged but it's been a month and things you know the story's moved on there's other things to do uh like look at the killing of david dawn look at the killing of uh dave patrick underwood look at the king killing of marie kelly look at the killing of chris betty all black americans who were killed during blm riots like that's crazy no one should be killing black people in the name of black lives matter that is crazy you have to say that's crazy in order to discourage people from doing it you have to say it's crazy to deface the lincoln memorial in order to stop people from doing it you've got to say it's well, and crazy also, and, a, and accompanying the acts of violence so acts of violence are not i think that dangerous in of themselves except obviously to the people who are hurt and killed and all that but for the larger society they can be withstood so long as you don't have what exactly what happened which is where people start to make excuses and justify the violence and stuff Dude, there's just one way protests work. The protest has a just cause, and everyone who loves the just cause resists the, the those who would rather hijack the just cause. And that includes that includes like the other side, as it were. So if there's police brutality, you got to call that out. And it also includes people who would call yourself their your allies, but aren't like uh, you know Antifa terrorists. Yeah, anyway, Marcus. so yeah police abolitionists people who think that you know the solution to uh, uh <coughs> the problem of crime and punishment is no punishment um yes it's just madness so i you know so i thought ice and gruber did a ice gruber did a really weak job of not mentioning any of that stuff i think he also did a really weak job of uh talking about um uh, the cooper case have you watched the Cooper? Yeah, you you know about the Cooper case, the the the, Pat, the Central Park thing that happened just around the time of George Floyd's murder or killing. Uh no, I didn't follow that at all. I'm afraid. So what happened is, Amy Cooper is a white woman who uh, votes Democrat and donated money to Pete Buttigieg, who was my favorite, and to Barack Obama, who was my favorite, and to some other guy like John Kerry, who was not my favorite, and. Uh, Christian Cooper, not related, is a black dude. He's like in his 60s or something. He's a Harvard graduate and he's a bird watcher. So they're in the oh, rambles. Yes. No, I do know what you're talking about, yes. And they had a, uh, a altercation with each other in a park because uh, she wasn't following the rules of the park. And he told her to follow the rules. And Put she, a leash on your well, dog. She, yeah, she escalated it a little bit. Yeah, man, she went crazy. So he says, Put a leash on your dog. She says, No. I'm not going to do that. So he's like, this is crazy. I'm going to film you. So he whips out his camera. And then she says, well, I'm going to phone the police and tell them an African-American man is accosting me, is threatening my life. Yes. And threatening my life. Uh, and the, the implication there, and she's playing on the sort of idea that the police are prone to just murdering black people in America for no reason. So she's essentially trying to make a threat against his life in one interpretation of it. Yeah. And he's like, go ahead, call the police. Go ahead, call the police. So she calls the police and you see her, he films her go through this histrionic performance of being like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, there's this black man who's coming after me. Oh, it's so scary, you must come. And then, the, and he doesn't run away. He stays there. He waits for the police to get there. He's like, this is what happened. She says her version. He's got the video evidence. The police laugh it off. There is, it is common cause that there was no force applied to either of them. No one was cuffed. No one was like pushed up against a wall. Um, definitely no one had a neck, a boot to their neck or a knee to their neck. No one was shot, right? The police, it's common cause, behaved perfectly well. They they separate, no charges have, laid. Have, 
have the police ever killed a Harvard graduate? Not to my knowledge, man. Not in, not in anything like circumstances like that. So I've been, I've been, I've been delving into police NYPD police data to find any recorded case of the police. I'm trying to find the last time the police killed a black unarmed man in Central Park. Can't find that. Uh, uh, it's it's sort of it seems unlikely that it was very recent because uh, NYPD haven't killed anyone in Manhattan uh, in that part of anywhere near that part of New York City yeah. in in a very long time. Anyway, so. The, so Ice Gruber says, you know what, this case demonstrates, he says this is a lot like, you know, he implies that this is just like the George Floyd case. And he says what this demonstrated, what the Cooper case demonstrated was how easily a black man's life can be put in danger by a white racist. Which is uh, like, how do you explain that? How do you explain that claim? Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you don't. Um, but you know, a lot of the Black Lives Matter, and I'm, this is a point I'm cribbing from another podcast. But uh, a lot of this movement is really not based on anything, like at all. I mean, as you've pointed out, uh, as people have pointed out, so uh, back in the Ferguson riots, after a guy called or is this Michael Brown was shot by a cop, uh, he was unarmed at the time, but sort of there was a trial, and it found that his life was probably threatened by the unarmed guy it's and you know that's not what's important what is important though was a story came out of this whole thing that uh, that the guy who was shot had said first put up his hands and said stop don't shoot hands up don't now shoot, that yeah hands yeah. up don't shoot now that was attested by not a single witness i believe uh it, it the guy here just performed a robbery with later came up with that story about three days later uh none of the people involved in the trial or the witnesses or stuff said that said that that had happened so it was a lie uh, and this is attested to by multiple different sources. Uh, and yep. yet that became the standard way that, and to this day in these current protests, uh, a lot of Black Lives Matter protesters, they put up their hands and they say, Stop, uh, hands up, don't shoot, as as a way of saying, you know, we're being murdered, we're being systematically killed by the cops in America. Yeah, um, dude, And yet it's based on nothing. The, the, uh, unfortunately, a section of the Black Lives Matter movement is like impervious to reason. Uh, like it's like they like some people like you get a bulletproof vest and then you get like a fact proof vest like no amount of facts under national DOJ run by Eric Holder under Barack Obama investigations with support of the FBI no amount of forensic evidence of you the, the, the telling I read that FBI I read the full DOJ report a year ago and I reread uh, parts of it recently the, the most telling bit is that there was uh gunpowder soot scorched into michael brown's hand which could the, the only way that the, the the soot could be on the hand is if he's in a radius of like a couple of feet the only way it could be scorched in is if it's so close to the hot muzzle that as the gunpowder releases from the trigger being pulled that when it touches the hand that's extremely hot so it gets scorched in like it's very clear he was trying that, to grab the guy's gun as he got yeah. shot the first time yeah okay anyway so but no facts don't matter so, so, so I, you see, I, here's my issue. I think I can explain why, um, Ice Gruber thinks that, um, Christian Cooper could easily, to use his term, have been killed. And I think it's the same thing you need to, uh, appeal to, to understand why Amy Cooper thought that she could so easily call on the cops while being filmed 
and not get fired and denounced by the nation as has happened and instead sort of get some kind of George Floyd result. And that is that these guys don't think of uh, racism, systemic racism in, in, in relation to actual systems. Actual systems being like this de police department, this university, this public safety body, this uh, country even. They think of it in terms of like some universal metaphysical thing, just like I found with those four lists back in 2008. Systemic racism means somehow metaphysically, wherever a white person goes, privilege follows like a shadow. It's just innate. And there's kind of, it's ultimately unbeatable. Uh, Dude, it's so it's so difficult to see this in anything other than the light of a kind of uh, of like a insane end of the world millenarian Christian movement that's gone completely off the wall and it's decided that there's only damnation and no salvation. Yeah, exactly. That the power and, of the devil lurks in everything and can never be defeated. This is God is dead, but his, he lurks on in the shadows. This very, you know, weirder and weirder deformities of Christianity have unfortunately followed the sort of deconstruction of the church. And it did start, you know, in some regard after World War One, and you know, in Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, and and it, and, and and that legacy lives on. Uh, but okay, so so I just want to finish off because we need to move on to the next topic on this Princeton story, with 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 two key points. One is that uh, the board, uh, so the board met. Ice Gruber said. I want the board to meet to to rescind the recommendation of this arduous, lengthy public process to keep Wilson's name with accompanying education uh, of the sort that Gabriel Krauser, no one knows, uh, had thought of a couple of years before. Uh, we're not doing that. We're going to take <laughs> Wilson's name down. Okay, so the board has this meeting in secret, and then they publish this letter to say we've done it, and they explain themselves. They say, you know, we're not saying that the 2016 decision was wrong or racist. We're just saying that it didn't answer what it did answer. The question was, you know, is is Wilson's legacy complicated? Was he a racist, and was he, you know, were there some good parts and were there some bad parts? But today, there's a different question that needs answering, and that question is, is it appropriate for a school of public affairs to have as its name a racist? This is absurd. You read the report, it clearly was designed to try and answer that question. That was the causes belly, that was the genesis, that was the germane point. This guy's a racist, with that in mind, should we be taking down his name? And the report found, you know, he is a racist consistently. Amazingly, a lot of people don't realize that. We need to educate people about that, but we don't think that you And should super take racist for his time as well. Yes, they, and they make that very clear too. So the board completely neglects to 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 attend to the actual report in saying why we now need a different solution. It then says the reason the question is more urgent now than it was in 2016 is now we have uh, tragic reminders of systemic racism in the form of uh, George Floyd. And then it lists four other people who were killed in the last year. One of them is like a Muslim dude. Uh, one of them is a black dude. One's a black woman. And the, and the fourth one I can't remember. I'm sorry. Uh, I've been sort of absorbed by COVID-19 coverage and and, and, the, and and South African politics. But I was much closer to American politics at the time. And in 2015, 2016, Black Lives Matter was a hot movement. Everyone knew the name of Eric Gardner. Everyone had that footage burned into their memories of that guy dying uh, sort of, of asphyxiation or, you know, being choked and dying to use the sort of strange legalese that one's compelled to use. Everyone knew about Freddie Gray. 
everyone knew about Michael Brown and hands up, don't shoot. There are the, the list of black people killed by the police at the time is much longer than the, the list of black people killed by the police in the last year. Overall, police shootings of unarmed black people has gone down precipitously between 2015 and 2020. So it can't be a statistics thing. It can't be the fact that there weren't protests then in 2015, 2016, because they were. And it can't be the fact that people didn't care. Dude, Darren Roof, that asshole killed nine black people in a church sporting an apartheid Dylan flag. Dylan Roof. Dylan, Dylan Roof. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And, like, and, a, and a Rhodesian flag as well on him as well. What more fresh memory could you have? Who could ever forget that? And who could have forgotten that in 2015, 2016? How can the board say that the difference I, between now and then is that now we have fresh reminders of racism and then we, we were all out of fresh reminders of racism? It's worse than mm. absurd. It's insulting. It's fundamentally insulting to the hard work done by the entire Princeton community that contributed to that process, by the professors, by the adjuncts, by the administrators, by the deans of the colleges. It's insane. And it's and it and the worst of all, it's insulting to the memories of the Vic of the Charleston Nine, of Eric Gardner, and 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 all of the Black Lives Matter victims that were being celebrated and commemorated, and 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 who were a sort of causes belly for change at the time. It's com it's disgraceful, and it's the same disgraceful like attitude that causes them to say, well, you know what, uh. Uh, uh, the, the 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 review didn't even attempt to answer the question of whether it's appropriate for a racist to have their name on, on, on the name of a public institution. And now, just to make matters worse, President Eisgruber publishes, at the same time as releasing his letter to the Princeton community, uh, a, a paper on Washington Post, which is irritating because that means that would have had to be set up in advance. So he wasn't sort of first speaking to the community and then speaking to the world, he was like, you know, we're going to do one and one and the same at the same time. And in the in the Washington Post letter, he says he doesn't even mention the review process. He just says, I used to support keeping up the statue of Woodrow Wilson, and now I don't. And he says, why? Because now I realize that there's ignorance uh, that that we disregard um, the legacy uh, of Woodrow Wilson, and and there's even ignorance about his racism. Now he realizes that in 2020. But the review wrote it in black and white in 2016. He had students sitting his, in his office saying that in 2015. It's like he's expecting us to believe that Eisgruber, who I know is an extremely intelligent man and I know has lived a very honorable life, has suddenly become like a racist himself, so racist that he can't hear the voices of black students sitting in his own office saying, dude, there's a problem. Woodrow Wilson is a racist, was a racist, and it's not being taught. Like... None of these reasons make sense. None of the reasons that they say the 2016 decision was good, but now things have changed. So now we have to reverse the 2016 decision without going through the same process. None of the reasons make sense. The only reason that does make sense to me is that these guys are capitulating before pressure of violence. And I don't even want to say that because I can't think of an institution in the world that I have more respect for at an academic level than Princeton University. And yes, that sounds arrogant because yes, I went there and yes, everyone kind of <laughs> wants to say that their own university was the best. But guess what? Princeton University has been consistently related for the last 20 years as the top undergraduate program in the country. It's also been rated as the top undergraduate program no, in the world. Why? Precisely because of the liberal arts nature of its qualification. Dude, I can't think of another university that would have taken in a cowardly white piss and like myself and 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 produced someone who was willing to go and work for the Institute of Race Relations to try and make a difference to this country. Like that is that is Princeton's gift. That's what it did for me.
Mm. And I don't think it'll ever, I can't see how it'll do that again. If I was thinking of entering Princeton now, like I would definitely stick with my original UCT game plan. Like stay away from politics. No one's ever going to respect you as a white person. All you should do is make lots of money and, you know, donate some of it to a charitable cause if you want to make a difference or, or, or whatever, man. But like let the ANC loot pillage and, 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 and scapegoat white supremacy. Let, 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 let Collins cause a, be killed let Sibusi's aim be killed there's nothing you can do about it you must never complain about it because people are just going to call you a bigot and a perpetuator of white systemic racism and a perpetuator of white supremacy and, and just stay away dude that was a horrible place to be in and i will n never forget how grateful i am to princeton for 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 bringing me out of that and 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 and, and it wasn't easy man it took it took like centuries for that university to get itself into the position where it could take someone as stupid as me and 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 find some ounce of of integrity to to, <laughs> to 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 plant a seed that something can grow out of it. And I, I, dude, I'm definitely full of faults, but like, I think I'd be much worse if I hadn't gone there and if I hadn't gone to the kind of university that did the 2015 2016 process. And and what I'm seeing today, man, it just like, dude, if Princeton can't get it right, like, dude, Oxford's definitely like miles behind. You know, Cambridge is miles behind uh in in terms of this stuff they have they have had way more like weird attitudes about this and and yeah i mean look dude i know that you know that there are proper conservative like universities in america that 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 uh well, that aren't going to fall for this but like yeah. you know there's something about like there's something about that brand there's something about the influence that that has on the rest of the country there's something about being a lodestar that's just, it's a responsibility with great privilege. It's a great privilege to be an administrator or a student at Princeton. And it comes with great responsibility. And I just, I've, I've never felt so torn about how how that responsibility is being reneged on. Okay, Nick, <coughs> I, have, I have streamed my nonsense. Please take my mind off of this, either by telling me what I don't know about the situation or, or, or about something <laughs> on the other end of the planet that's really important and that no one's talking about. Yeah, so I'll just finish off this thing here with, um, as far as I'm concerned, I, my, uh, you know, scion of white privilege and male patriarchy, I am. Uh, my patience for the sort of the, there's no goodwill left in me for a lot of this movement at the moment. Uh, this just looks to me like a revolutionary fervor, and it's the same kind of madness that grips any movement that's sort of got a lot of momentum, where uh, things just kind of stop what actually is happening or what actually originally happened uh, no longer really matters at all. Um, what matters is that the movement keeps going and that means that everything must be changed and thrown down and torn down. And I hate iconoclasm. I absolutely despise it. Uh, I, I think that statues are kind of important and so I'm open to the idea that you should take statues or change names of buildings and stuff because I do think that they do have a real effect. I'm not always on board with this oh, we need to remember our past type of thing. Yeah. But it needs to be done through a very considered, deliberate process and not at a time of emotional high and revolutionary fervor. Mm. Um, and that, to me, is the real problem here. And I think that unless uh, institutions start actually kind of standing up into this, there's going to be a lot of damage done to the broader cultural fabric. That's that's yeah. not going to be healed for a while. Um, uh, you know, there's a, it's, it's, for me, uh, the biggest problem here is a process thing. Um, but absolutely, I'm so with about, you. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Just to be clear, like if the 2015-2016 review thing at Princeton had come out the other way and been like, 
you know, we see an argument for keeping him up, but we want to take him down. Uh, but, but we think it's more important to just take him down. Dude, I would have been happy with that. Yeah. Because um, the process was good. Yeah, you got you got to have a process and you got to not have... I, <laughs> I, I think that it also has to take a long time. You can't have uh, students still occupying an office or something like that when the decision is made. It has to yeah, come yeah, from a exactly. place of genuine sort of, okay, yeah. we've really thought about this and we thought about it. Um, you know, I have I have quite a lot of conservative sensibilities, particularly uh, I believe in the idea of, of the I think it's Chesterton's fence, it's usually called, which is where uh, before you tear down something or change something, you really need to understand why it's there in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and you often can't work that out just by a cursory glance around and sort of some 20 minutes of pondering while yeah. uh, smoking think about it. blunt. <laughs> the first time these guys did it, it took them 11 months to have the debate. The second time, yeah. it took four days. Yeah, and the decision was made by a bunch of elites cowed by the cowed by the sort of mood of the times um, long before, you know, without any kind of real public debate. Uh, but the other topic I wanted to talk about today um, is this clash between India and China. So now, you know, I think a lot of attention in the world is actually being increasingly being played to China. As China has become more powerful, everyone sort of has has started to move to pay more attention to it. People who study Mandarin are like a like a hot commodity now. Now, yeah. for those who haven't really been following this, because it hasn't been that covered that well, because no one understands how to cover India and China, um, especially India. Uh, India and China have long disputed the border along the Himalayas between the two countries. But recently, after a punch-up, which we talked about very briefly on this show, um, between Indian and Chinese troops, things escalated up in the Ladakha region, I think it's called, which is way up in the mountains in sort of northwest India. Uh, it's China. like the Himalayas. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, barren, horrible, I mean, freezing cold territory. And um, now due to an agreement in the 90s, two sides soldiers don't carry any guns up in that part of the world. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they can't kill each other. So there were repeated clashes between the two sides, which resulted in at least 20 Indian dead and probably around the same number of Chinese. Or the Chinese, because they're not a free society, don't release their casualty figures. Um, and most of it was done basically with pieces of wood with barbed wire wrapped around them. Uh, the fighting Jeez. because they're not allowed to use guns in that area. Uh, and also some of the deaths were from exposure to the freezing cold. Now, this is something I think we do need to kind of talk about, which is that India is this enigmatic, crazy place. I've heard India described as a country that um, no one really is in control of. It's, it's, its central government is relatively weak. It's got a very federal structure to its government. And despite a lot of problems, uh, it still has a lot of the sort of structure of a liberal democratic society laid over it. Um, it has borrowed a lot of good stuff, I think, from from English common law, from British common law in its legal system. Uh, it's uh, It's got at least some, some ideas of itself are centered around being a kind of multi-ethnic, multi-religious society that's founded around shared values. Um, it's a society that uh, has like strong paper, newspapers and judiciary. It's in, in some ways, it's arguable that it has some of the best newspapers in the world in terms Dude, of their I ability think, to, to hold government yeah. to account. Also, the most uh, pleasant to read. The most yes. sparkly prose, like informative, biting, 
you know, it's sort of it's it's it neither falls into that trap of being super dry like textbook or into that trap of being like, okay, I've read a thousand words, I know what your opinion is, but like I haven't learned yeah. one fact. You want to go? You want to see some? I, I read. I've, the only place I've ever read something that felt like it was written by Gareth von Onslen that was not written by Gareth von Onslen was me reading. I think it was the Times of India, just talking about crazy stuff that Hindu nationalist politicians had claimed over the years. Mm. Um, and it's very. It reminded me very much of the kind of pieces that Gareth might write about how our own sort of race nationalists might, uh, what they might say. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it's got a lot of good stuff going for it, and also um, huge think, economic growth. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So it's coming up in the world now, and the fact that it and uh, and of course it also has nuclear weapons, and I think it's like three years now. In three to four years, it's going to have the biggest population on the planet. So it's really important that all of us begin to understand this country a little bit better. Um, for me personally, I think on a sort of uh, I am sometimes prone to a kind of Whiggish interpretation of history that there's a standard bearer of liberal democratic capitalism. At the moment, it's America. But uh, as we just talked about, um, <laughs> America yeah, seems to be wobbling a little bit. Uh, and uh, it's kind of, you know, fighting with itself more than anything, really. So yeah. we need to, I think, look to maybe where the future of liberal democratic capitalism might have its sort of standard bearer where it might be driven forward yeah and it's i think that I, and india is the best place for that yeah so the thing about india I'm, is some one of my issues with india is that i really do feel uh that indian history trying to understand indian history and trying to understand indian politics is like trying to understand european history or yeah. european politics like it, you can get a grip on like French history and French politics or or British history or whatever, but it's like India is like as big as Europe, and it's been literate for like as long. So there's and has more so, people. So there's stories and factions and clashes and like intellectual developments and inversions and dialectics and and all of this stuff that sort of intertwine the macro and the micro that make yeah. for an interesting nuance understanding of a body politic that just go back across a billion people, like back through history for centuries. And so it's, it's, it's hard to know where to start. It's also hard to not feel like um, you, you kind of want multiple sources when you're dealing with something so big, because it's so exactly. easy when you're dealing with something so big for someone to pull the wool over your eyes. So you kind of want to see the story being told from multiple points of view. And I feel like my issue is that whenever I sort of get, somewhat into one source i pull back because i feel like ah but this could just be rubbish instead yeah. of sort of pushing through and being like you know what you have to get through the first source don't believe it believe it whatever get through the second source get through the third source and then you're going to start being able to triangulate right um and so here's another example of how the scale sort of warps our, our ability to understand the place um the bjp uh and i'm going to try pronounce this I've never been able to pronounce this properly, but it's the Bharatiya Janta Party, right? Which Nick, is that India's was, governing that party. Was, say that again. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Which it means Indian People's Party. Uh, yeah. It's the sort of right-wing Hindu nationalist party. It's the governing party of India. Um, that party claims to have a membership of 180 million people, making it the biggest political party in the world, I believe. 
um, uh, you know, not counting the ones that might be cheating, like the Chinese Communist Party, where, you know, <laughs> to get ahead, you have to be a member of the party. Um, so 180 million people is crazy, dude. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, if you want to understand the BJP, it's not like understanding, let's say, the British Conservative Party or the French Socialist Party or something like that. It's like understanding the entire European Socialist movement in one party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can be, you know, uh, uh, this is a point I think you've made before, which is that you can be, uh, you can be known by one third of the members of the the BJP, uh, and that would make you known by more people than every single person in South Africa, including the babies, prob- including the yeah. babies, and yet still not able to win an election in the party. <laughs> yeah, dude, you <laughs> can have name voted. brand recognition and positive, positive like. Uh, attitude from God, a third of the party, and you're still nowhere. It's cr- it's yeah. it's 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 very. But so the thing is, and this is part of our problem is that we <clears throat> we I think I think we're trying to be brave here and say, here's what we know. We know that we don't know enough. Yes. And I think this is a little bit like you know those dudes who like. You know, I'm going to post on Facebook about like every time I go to the gym because somehow that <laughs> gets like some public accountability thing going that's going to incentivize me to be a little bit more fastidious about going to the gym. Dude, I think we are kind of doing that with ourselves and with our listeners. Like, And I think that that's kind of necessary in terms of understanding Indian politics because it, because it is such a daunting mountain to climb. Dude, it's, it is yeah. the Himalayas of politics. It is the most so high... <laughs> complicated like it's a democracy that takes a month to vote every single day like millions and millions of votes being being cast because because how many votes do they make i mean it's it's like i think uh, it's 500 million i'm not i'm not entirely sure it might be higher than that (laughs) i think it's like it's like it's like half a billion i think they were pushing towards half a billion it's just it's just not even a number that you can wrap your head around um but it's but it's not good enough like this is the 21st century. We are here at 2020. Might as well call it day zero. Uh, and we're and this is up. the 20. 20- they have um, <clears throat> they have 911 million registered voters. <laughs> and they had a turnout of 67 percent. So the same turnout as South Africa had in the 2019 election. Did we've got to do better? We've got to figure out how to figure out India. Uh, yes. This is this is like a global mission. Yeah. And it's going to be increasingly important. It is a, it is this massive engine, and its success as a liberal democratic society, if it if it can retain those aspects of its culture and uh, and its society, and build on them, uh, is very important. Um, because right now, I think that there is a reasonable case to be made, and I've, from people who know more than me, they seem to suggest this that it is in danger of slipping into a kind of. It's obviously not quite race nationalism because Hinduism is not really a races a racism uh, but it is it is a kind of inflexible identitarianism um that that i think could turn the nation into a sort of totalitarian nightmare uh that 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 would not would not do good for its people or for the world um because a kind of violent nationalist nation that's looking you know to uh, expunge unclean elements from itself is also likely to behave more irresponsibly on the global stage. And yeah. when it's a nuclear power, that's not a good thing. 
Yeah. Especially when it's and, next to another nuclear power, which also has expansionist aims in Asia, uh, being that being China, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And and sort of <coughs> both of those countries almost border on Russia, which is the world's favorite kind of democracy, sort of. Uh, is that a phrase? <laughs> is that a political phrase? Democracy, sort of? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a... Uh, Dude, it's definitely saw, sort saw, of a, it's sort of a democracy. I, I saw I saw someone spoofing a, a a a Putin ad. Unfortunately, people were passing it around on social media as a Putin ad, but it was actually a spoof. Um, but it has the line: uh, "It's some children who and their family who refused to vote for Putin a few years ago. They didn't bother to go vote, and now Russia is bearing the consequences." Um, and the children say, "I want to go play in the backyard," and their parents say, "You can't because it's now a NATO base." <laughs> <laughs> dude Rus russians are so, they have such a twisted sense of humor man I, god i saw they had the they had the most bizarre i saw the most bizarre spoof on a couple of my russian <coughs> friends is uh um facebook walls about black lives matter there was this guy who was like one white guy kills another white guy on on camera. I think it is in St. Petersburg, or maybe it is in Moscow near that bridge. Like very, very public place, very central place, very yeah, historic yeah, yeah. place. Very much the kind of sort of, you know, middle of Nelson Mandela Santon Square kind of Johannesburg equivalent. And the sort of meme comment going around was, uh, uh, I hope no black people were shot. Uh <laughs> Russians do as a as a way to like make fun of the American, and it's just like it. Firstly, <coughs> I think it gives you some sense of the Russian sense of humor, and secondly, it gives you some sense of like who is happy with American politics right now. I'm sorry, yeah, I've walked you from from India to China through Russia back to America, but like the Russians couldn't be more stoked. Yeah, this, this is, is this is you know if you're this is if way you're better than. They don't care who's president. They care that like America's A plus plus premium institutions are reneging on their commitment to process over power, over uh, the stupidest and most petty of political disputes. And I, I don't mean in that sense the police reform stuff. I mean a lot of the things that stymie any attempt to get anything done are very, uh, you know, can we win the next news cycle type of thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not. It's not. It's. It's as you say. It's so far from real concern about George Floyd, or by the way, Tony Timper, who was killed in 2016 in exactly the same oh. way. Well, let uh, me. Let me. Uh, let me. Let me. I think maybe finish with this, which is that there was a tweet of some actor resigning from. They used to voice someone who I think was an Asian American, but they were white. Uh, a cartoon character was an Asian American, but they were white. It was on and the said, Simpsons. I'm resigning. Yeah, something like that, whatever. Yeah. Simpsons yeah. Family Guy, something like that. Yeah. And the person said, uh, oh, I'm stepping down from this. And some random person who managed to get, I think, over 100,000 likes on the tweet replied to that with, uh, this is supposed to be about police brutality. How did this happen? <laughs> 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 which uh <Dude>. yeah oh <laughs> which my god it hurts bro it the hurts revolutionary atmosphere we're in
<coughs> it's. I hope I hope our listeners on are, are not going to take this in on a Sunday night. I hope they take this in on a, on like a jolly Thursday afternoon, when 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 the, when the full <laughs> human mirth and delight of that joke can really land, because <laughs> that's, that's crazy. <laughs> You know, Twitter may be the worst place on the planet, but it is also occasionally amazing. <laughs> there is good and bad in all things, and that is my lesson. I was making the mistake of venerating my own alma mater. Well, I mean, I could have told you that that was a bad idea, but that's also because I'm a grumpy old conservative, leaning liberal man who hates all elite institutions. <laughs> Very good. That's well, not entirely true. I like the aristocracy. <laughs> <laughs> I hate all elite institutions excepting fox hunting with the hounds. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, Nick, we're slipping here. Yes, uh, we must close. I will. I will ask you to give uh, our, our listeners a recommendation of something they should maybe check out. Something that's uh, a lot of fun, uh, or, or not so fun, or thoughtful. Anything good to read or to watch? Okay, Roger C. Fryer. He is a Harvard economist who I think you've got to read. He was the first black uh, dude to get tenure at Harvard in their economics department. He was also like 30 at the time. Uh, but that was like 10 years ago. Two years ago, he was then sort of um, not fired, but like put on hold because he had been sexually harassing some of his women colleagues. The funniest bit about that is he says to, he sends a text late at night to one of his women colleagues. He says, if you were here right now, I don't know if I'd want to bite you or tackle you or both. And <laughs> when this text is read out uh, in this sort of sexual harassment hearing, he says, nah, man, that's just like a, that's just like a race thing. That's just a thing we black people say to each other. And then they ask the woman, and she's like, "Dude, I've like I'm black. I've been black all my life. I've never heard. I've never heard that one. Maybe I haven't been that black, but like I've definitely been black." So this guy, so he sounds like a fool, but he's he's like he's a pretty interesting economist. He wrote this uh, article that's been going around in the Wall Street Journal. He sort of has one of the studies that people have been relying on to say that there's no evidence of. Uh, racial discrimination in police shooting of unarmed uh, individuals and I've been reading the actual study and it's freely available um, and it's amazing because it's so complicated it's so granular the differences between you know uh, shooting uh, unarmed people shooting armed people the difference between shooting and applying force the difference between applying uh, you know tasers versus batons versus uh, you know, stop and frisk versus New York versus Houston, uh, regional differences. It's like it really gives a rich sense of a lot of progress. It gives you like quite a, a refined sense of, of where there's work to be done. And I think that's what's helpful, right? It's never helpful to think, oh, we just generally need progress. You've got to identify where it already works, uh, where it doesn't work, and then and then figure out how to bridge the gap. So I'm not sure that sounds like fun to everyone. But it's been fun to me because it's been heartening. It's been heartening to see that at least one of the Ivy Leagues is producing great, interesting, thought-provoking research. Uh, so, oh my God, Harvard sucks. No, I was going to say Harvard's great, but Harvard sucks. But Harvard's anyway. Never mind. Freya, read Freya. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm clearly stuck in a very like childish like 
Yeah, uh, no, this is clearly blue, a fake blue team, team red team, team thing. It's my can, brain is can, my brain is my brain is mush, dude. Tell me, tell me what I should be listening to or watching or doing to kind of pull myself out of this malaise. Uh, so I'd recommend um, uh, there's a lot of lot of good YouTube content. Uh, you could maybe start with from a channel called Invicta. There you've done a video on the rise of the Mughal Empire and the reign of Akbar the Great. Uh, and this is a key point in India's history. So I recommend people who are interested in learning more about India. It's an interesting place to start. Uh, the Mughals are quite a fascinating uh, state in India. They, they, they lay a lot of the groundwork um, for modern India, which, of course, uh, that they are the last native Indian group to rule India before the establishment of the Republic of India, because they... When they collapse, uh, the, the space that they leave is filled by, well, it's filled by various groups, but eventually they lead the way towards the British Empire taking over India. Um, so they are quite an interesting group. They are also, they have their origins outside of India. Um, and some of the things that are happening in Indian politics today draw kind of a, a distant line back to the Mughal Empire. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. Uh and then I'd recommend also if you're interested in seeing the craziness of American politics right now. Uh, so <laughs> the, there's this, I'm sure you've probably seen it in the news. This guy John Bolton, uh, former National Security Advisor to Trump, <laughs> Dude, very like very how... polarizing figure. <laughs> Dude, that guy's He's mustache a... has got to be one of the hottest. It is the greatest mustache. I love it. <laughs> uh, whether you think that he's an evil warmongering lunatic or uh, the you know the only sane man left in an insane american foreign policy space um yeah go look at what some of the extracts from his new book uh, up, uh that include fun anecdotes about him working with trump oh now, my God, i dude, don't know if all of them are true we we have to finish okay. yeah yeah you've got it so time. you've got john it bolton that trump was extremely obsessed with <laughs> Uh, with 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 news media's coverage of him, which is something that I think is objectively a fact. But here's yes. here's the here's the spicy bit that uh, Bolton in, alleges. It's indubitable that uh, during his Hanoi summit with um, Kim Jong Un, the leader of North Korea, he uh, he took a break in the middle of it to go and watch how various things were being covered by the media, particularly the summit, my cable cable news. And he comes back into the meeting room and he says to Kim Jong-un through a translator, ah, you know, the media are just so unfair to me and they give me such a hard time. Do your media give you such a hard time? Kim Jong-un <laughs> sort of looks a bit confused for a second and then says, obviously, that's not a problem I have. And then chuckles. <laughs> <laughs> that story is so great. I really that hope. That it's both it is, true and not true. <laughs> dude, it's too good not to be true. Like if it weren't it's true, you'd have to it'd just have to be true. It speaks so much to like a very, very sad fact. Yeah, if you're if you're looking for a if that story is true, it might at least explain some of why America is in a lot of trouble right now. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't get it. The media is so mean to me. Wait, what have you done? Are they mean to you? <laughs> Dude, and then, but what was the other thing? Like, apparently Trump in the White House, you can see there's a little light on when he, when, when, when he's in the Oval Office, when it's occupied. 
Yeah, yeah, especially in the early mornings um, when it's quite dark. They don't all, not all the lights are on in the White House. And someone tweeted out a picture saying, uh, I think it was just as Fox and Friends, which is a morning talk show, came on. Uh, they tweeted out a picture of the light being on the Oval Office saying, I bet he's watching Fox and Friends. And within an hour, he was tweeting out on subjects that were covered on Fox and Friends. <laughs> Dude, this is like all those people, everyone. And I know the feeling like you sit on your TV, you watch the news and you like feel like you could run the whole country because you've just watched like two hours of news and you've like shouted at the TV and you know how to do things. <clears throat> well, that's America decided to see whether that was actually possible, whether the guy who shouts at the TV and calls him to talk radio should run the place. <laughs> that is, that is, that has been happening. Anyway, oh stay safe, God. everyone. We will, uh, we'll see you around and uh, have a wonderful week. This should be out on Monday. So have a, have a wonderful week going forward and we'll catch you around sometime next weekend. <laughs> Guys. And if you can find hope, like if you, if it sounds like we are, if we're grasping at grasping here, like, you know, feel free to email Nicholas and I, like anything that's actually like good news and delightful that you'd like us to talk about, because Lord have mercy. It'd be nice to talk a bit, to talk about, you know, uh, some, something good.